Open with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 19, we'll be reading from verses 23 through 34 to begin today. Our text for the morning will be Ephesians 5 and 6, but we'll start here for some background, a little more background uh, to the Ephesian church. And by the way, last night I was corresponding with Ryan a bit. Um, He's going to be back in the pulpit, uh, picking up in the Gospel of Mark, where we left off around Christmas time. We were discussing some details, and he closed uh, his email with this, and this is good news. BTW just sent off dissertation 2.0, dot, 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 or 32.0, dot, 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 or whatever. Uh, The next stage is the defense, and that could be many months away, Um, but this huge chapter, uh, dissertation of his life, is now submitted, and uh, so you can thank the Lord for that and keep praying for him. He's been working on that while we've been working through Ephesians. Well, last week we opened with the story of a huge magical bonfire. Actually, it was a bonfire of books of magic and spells and such that the Ephesian Christians were trusting in, used by everyone in the region in the worship of the local god Artemis, These new Christians became convinced that if Jesus really was risen, then these books were rubbish. They were nothing. If Jesus was powerful, then Artemis wasn't, and neither were these books. So up in flames they went, 50,000 days' wages worth of books they counted. And apparently the region of Ephesus felt the heat. And this is where the story picks up. Verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, this is what God saved the Ephesian believers from. No, not the physical problem of this riot although as the story unfolds, they were providentially delivered from the riot. God saved them from the spiritual problem of a life that revolves around a lie. God made the world and everything in it. Artemis exists in the imagination of the people, yet she is the unifying explanation for all of life for them, and they cannot afford for her to be a fraud. Just like this, we too were lured by this world's promises of power and of wealth and of health and a future. But now for Christians, all of this has changed. Our life is governed by a different center. Our life is governed by a new controlling and primary relationship. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesus was the keeper of the temple of Artemis. The stone, if Acts says, uh, fell from the sky. And the two verses, these first two verses of chapter 5, we're reminded about what our lives as Christians revolve around. These are good life verses right here. 
Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Two verses, two commands, two reasons. Verse 1, imitate God. How? As beloved children, which is also the why. Verse 2, walk in love. Well, how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, which is also the why. We are God's beloved children loved by Christ. And get what this means in Christianity. It is always, always, always identity before doing. It is always identity before doing. We live a particular way because of who we already are in Jesus Christ. And the whole book is set up this way. Chapters 1 and 3 of Ephesians unpack our salvation in Christ. Paul speaks about the salvation for believers as a revelation of the mystery of God hidden for ages, now made known that God is reconciling through a cross, through Jesus, people to himself and to one another revealed in the church. In verses four, chapters 4 through 6, call us to live a life worthy of that salvation, to put the power of the gospel at work in the specifics of our lives. And if last week's sermon from Ephesians 4 was about life together as the church, then Ephesians 5 and 6 is about life as Christians in every other sphere and relationship of life that we find ourselves in. And as we saw Christ coming up over and over and over again in the first three chapters that discussed our salvation, so we'll see Christ coming up over and over and over again because he is at the center of the life that we now live in light of him and by the power of his love. We are adopted children made alive in Christ, loved by Christ, and God's power is at work within us. So show me, someone might say. Okay, look at how we live and our relationships. This is where it's demonstrated. The first relationship transformed by Jesus Christ, verses 3 through 21 of chapter 5, saints and this present darkness. Saints and this present darkness. How does our new relationship to God through Christ affect the way that we conduct ourselves in the world? Well, listen carefully here for the relationship between who we are, identity, and how we live, doing. But sexually, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not, must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let, us, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, this is our code of conduct. It is improper for the children of the United States of America to mix it up with terrorists when they're traveling uh, in the evenings. 
And it's improper for a child of a local business owner to graffiti their dad's storefront uh, in the night. And so there are some things done in the dark that just don't make sense for us as God's children. It doesn't doesn't fit. Sexual immorality doesn't fit. The pursuit of God-given romantic longings and sexual desires in a way that ignores God and the eternal dimension to these things. Impurity, covetousness, the God-replacing pursuit of things in this earth over the God of heaven. Filthiness, behavior that is best described as filthy. We use very sanitized words to describe our own sin, uh, which is sort of revealing. Struggle, brokenness, good words. There are also other words. Paul uses words like uh, filthiness here. Some things can only be described as impure, immoral, and filthy, and these are fine words to use. They're descriptive. Foolish talk and crude joking, using our words to make ugly things seem beautiful and beautiful things seem ugly. True things seem false and false things seem true. Serious things seem light. Those are good criteria for whether a joke or talk is foolish or crude. If you belong to God, these things are not proper. And for many reasons, which Paul gives. First of all, Christ died for these kinds of sins. And he died to make you a son of obedience, not a son of disobedience. Saints set apart for holiness, obedience. He saved you to please him, not grieve him. And these things grieve him. Or to put it in a really obvious way, light is not darkness. These are not the same things. You, belonging to God, are a child of the light. And so you should have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness. In fact, it's by the light of our life and the wor- our words that it is our job to expose the darkness. Consider that maybe if the Lord is kind one day, um, our, our, the, our people, uh, the, the place where we live, the people we live among will view pornography like we do slavery with the same abhorrence and disgust and rejection and abortion like we do the Holocaust. We will speak then, will we speak then with more clarity, more conviction, more courage and more compassion than we do right now? Or will we be singing the same tune we have always been singing? Might it be that we are serving the local God of PC or maybe we're serving the God of whatever we'd lose for that kind of clarity and compassionate, bold speech and conviction? It may be, but it's by our very lives, the purity of our lives, that we have a platform on which to speak about what's in the darkness and the darkness that is there. It's also from a life in the light that we can see the darkness for what it is, because our eyes have adjusted to the light. But if darkness is actually a pretty accurate description of your life, then you should be warned, for there is a cost for loving the dark. You will get it forever. And I don't say this happily, but the Bible says you will not inherit the kingdom of God, and the wrath of God remains on you. This is what Paul says here. So whatever you're getting in the dark, it's a net loss in light of eternity. And thankfully, though, thankfully, God sent Jesus Christ to die for sinners. Jesus Christ went into the darkness of sin and took the darkness on himself so that he could offer the light of his life in heaven and glory to you. And as long as you're alive and hearing, you can believe and be a child of God. So come out of the dark and come to Jesus himself who is the light and it will mean being exposed. It will mean admitting what is is. is. It will mean admitting darkness is what it is, darkness. But as Jesus exposes us for the sinners that we are, he then clothes us in his righteousness so that we stand without guilt and without shame before him and our heavenly father. This is what the cross has accomplished. But if you are a child of the light, then you should know that living in the light is actually still difficult. We are tempted by the darkness. We are easily at times lured. It is as possible as Christ is risen to stay in the light, but in God's providence, it is not automatic. Paul knows this as a sinner firsthand, and so he says, live carefully. Be wise, not foolish. Know God's will. 
Children of the light, stay on the path marked out for you by God's word. Don't be curious about what lurks in the shadows. Live carefully. Live dependently, not under the control of wine, but the spirit. Drink in God's word and song and teaching and in talking with Christian family around this room. Surround yourself with believers in conversation about the Lord. And live thankfully. Did you notice that thankfulness is mentioned twice in this passage? Thankfulness. It's the first thing to go when you're in the dark, but it's the first thing to return when you're in the light. Christ changes our relationship with the world around us. But if this first part is sort of a code of conduct for life in the world, then the next few relationships we explore are something like a household code. And in the first century, you would have household codes that ordered life in the home. And this is the household codes for Christians, and it orders life in the Christian home. And it is a shocking and a magnificent declaration of the transformation that God brings to the relationships that are in the home. The second relationship we look at is the relationship between husbands and wives. Husbands and wives, verses 22 through 33. There is only one more intimate relationship than our relationship with God, and that is our relationship with our spouses, if the Lord has been kind to bless you with marriage. First here, a word to wives, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Wives, the command here is to submit to your husbands in love and respect. And this entails a loving partnership and the enjoyment of your plans and purposes in life to the life of your husband. It can take on many forms and expressions and it looks different in each marriage, but it has to do with the heart of followership expressed in tangible ways in that relationship. There is a structure within the world that God has built and even between men and women in marriage that is beautiful and wonderful and to be honored and made beautiful in marriage. But notice all the mentions of Christ in this short role description. Your submission is qualified first by your submission to Christ as your Lord, whom you are ultimately serving in everything. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Life is ultimately his, and this qualifies your submission so that we never Submit to one another or wives to husbands in a way that would lead us away from the Lord or into sin against the Lord. Part of a a wife's job as a sister in Christ to a brother in Christ, if her husband is a believer, is also to speak the word, truth and love to the husband, which can involve correction. It doesn't exclude this. And you're to submit to your husband as Christ submits to the church, as the church submits to Christ, excuse me. For as Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is your head, Scripture says. And this is the order that God has built into uh, marriage. We should be clear here that God's vision for marriage was not to provide man with a wife in order that he might have somebody to get his chips. It just isn't. Uh, Perhaps... Some men have a very deficient view of uh, what this is supposed to look like in the home. You remember in Eden, man had it all. He talked with God and lived in paradise, and yet it wasn't good that he was alone. He needed companionship, a partner in life, and God made him to need a companion. So that it could be said that the God who made everything and made everything good, it was actually not good without you there. And this highlights Adam and man's great dependence upon God and on a wife and on your great dignity in placing God's plan. Married for a year, it only took me 30 seconds being back on my college campus dorm room floor where 30 guys lived in a very tight space in multiple rooms to realize how bad I needed a wife and didn't realize it. I mean, the trash overflow in the trash cans and the 
obnoxiousness from insecurity and conversation in the hall. Uh, it was just apparent to me that uh, the Lord had sort of uh, fixed me up in the last year having returned to campus. I remember um, we were a week married driving home from our honeymoon and we stayed with some friends in Kentucky and did a meal. And at the end of the meal, my buddy says, Trent, I could tell you're married. It's like you've settled down. Apparently, I didn't talk as much. I had someone to talk to. I had a companion in life, and uh, the Lord was kind to provide that for me. If you're single here and, and not married and desire to be married, go to the Lord with, with that in prayer. It's a good longing. Well, if there are any reasons that the language of submission makes anyone nervous, it's because of Satan's hatred for marriage and for God and for you and not God's loving and good designs. He poisons the lives of men so that they would abuse and neglect their wives, and he poisons the minds of women to compete with and resent their husbands. This is not always easy. Submission is not, depending on the circumstances. Every marriage is made up of two sinners. We don't always know exactly what this means. There are some very, very fine resources that work this out. But wives, let me say that from my perspective, limited though it is, and just knowing our church and knowing you and being involved in various ways, that you are doing a very, very marvelous job at this. You know yourself and where you can grow, and every marriage is different, but this church is not filled with loud, obnoxious, condescending women who uh, put their husbands down and run them over. Uh, It's filled with supportive, joyful Wives who share in the camaraderie of life with their husbands. And there are many beautiful expressions of marriage here. Much reason for encouragement in a day when this is not um, the picture of marriage that we see promoted. So be encouraged. The world is preaching a different vision. Stay with Christ and keep on it. Well, that's a word to the wives. Now a word to the husbands. Actually, a few words to the husbands if you look down. Three times as many. Let's see how serious this job is. Verse 25, how much does God intend uh, for the woman through her husband? Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in all splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one should ever love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, excuse me, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, husbands, if the language of love ever felt vacuous or light, go ahead and fill it with new meaning. Christ is not vacuous and his cross is not light. This here is a charge from the heart of heaven to make Jesus Christ the primary person in your marriage and in your relationship with your wife to give as Christ has given to you and to pursue for and in your wife what Christ has pursued for and in his church. What did he give? He gave himself He is ferociously and even violently in love with his bride. So let's fill this word with love and an image of the son of God dying and suffering and bleeding and suffocating in sacrifice for us. This is how much he loved us. And what was he pursuing? He was pursuing a beautiful bride to cleanse her of her sins, to wash her with the word Present her with splendor, no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy, without blemish. He goes on and on and on. Christ's bride was not perfect. She was a harlot. But Christ loves us beautiful. 
He loves us beautiful. So husbands, is your, is your wife's soul healthier and happier and stronger for her marriage to you? I have wondered at times if I'm not living off the capital of the investment of my wife's parents and her. I have the blessing of a wife who grew up in a home with parents who loved her in the Lord and instructed her in the word. And yes, the Lord is using both of us to grow one another in marvelous ways, but I pray she isn't more strengthened through the trial I bring to her life than she is by the encouragement and the help and the partnership and the love and the affection that I bring to her life. Our marriages are like a garden and they require much work. May our wives grow not in spite of us, but because of our tender and constant and diligent care. Which all sounds like a whole bunch of work. And it is a bunch of work. Hard work. Especially when the tools are dull. But the cross was hard work. Don't forget it. Remember what your dad told you. No pain, no gain. Jesus, when he died on the cross, endured the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. In part, the joy of seeing us with him and enjoying him forever. And we make no apology for pursuing our own gain in marriage. Paul appeals to our own gain and pleasure in marriage. A good wife is good to have and a better wife is better to have. And God uses the husband to improve the quality of the soul and the happiness of his wife to make her even more beautiful. Here's an illustration. You're taking a shower and you're using that loofah. Use a loofah. Like, what is this thing? It's great. It's called a loofah. I will never tell anyone I use a loofah, and here I am. Uh, So you're scrubbing your arms down and your legs and your back and all this, and you're not thinking you're doing a favor for your arm or you're doing a favor for your back. It's your back, but it's also you, right? Well, in loving your wife, it's like nurturing and cherishing your own flesh. The two become one flesh. That's what marriage is. And the happiest husbands are the the men who figured out how to align their own happiness and desires with the happiness of their wife. That kind of husband is not hard to submit to. Do you see how this is supposed to go together? It goes together in this way. God is good. And the unhappiest husbands are those who have pursued their happiness to the exclusion of the happiness of their wife. I met a gal uh, buying some lamps off Craigslist. I noticed she had a um, brochure, sorry, a bulletin from a church in town and just asked about the bulletin if she goes to this church. No, but my friends have invited me and I'm investigating Christianity. I'm trying to figure out what I believe. Asked a few more questions and learned that she'd grown up in a home um, where a brother had become a Christian and was walking with the Lord and now married with children and, and blessed of God in some ways. Not all Christians are, but, but, in, but a flourishing life. And her life was dark and lonely and empty. And she felt like she was cheated by the friends that she followed into the lifestyle that she had adopted in those years. And she was curious as to what lay in the book of the Bible and with Christianity in Christ. And she asked me a question. She said, I'm very curious about this. I'm intrigued by it, but I have one difficulty. And it was as though she was near tears. Can you explain to me what this is about submission? I just can't believe this. Uh, that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands and just do, just do whatever they say. As though they're a puppet or a servant. And I said, well, what I can do for you here is simply describe for you what the Bible teaches and then maybe paint a picture of what that looks like on the ground of my marriage. We talked about creation and God's designs and the fall and what happened in the fall and the curse and sin and what Christ does in the life of a man and a woman to reconcile them to himself and to one another and then to display the gospel and their mutual affection and love and the submission of a wife and the love of a husband. I described the description of Christ's suffering And how God calls men exactly to that. And it was like she was starting to shake and cry. And I thought maybe she would punch me in the face. Um, 
And uh, I was trying to be for. I said, well, I don't know how this is hitting you. I'm, I'm trying to be forthright with what the Bible says in the hopes that you'll receive it. And maybe this will clear some things up for you. And she said, no, keep going. It's beautiful. Isn't that sweet? Um, so I think oftentimes, because the devil is a schemer, uh, men and women believe a lie about God and his goodness and his designs concerning marriage. And it's for us to live this out and to show, demonstrate its beauty before the world and to testify to its beauty and the benefit that obedience to God is in our own life in marriage. Pray for people. Use your marriage as a display of the gospel. It's precisely what it is. Men and women are different and they're made for each other and those aren't popular ideas, but we believe them and it's beautiful. We should affirm it wherever we see it. Well, our relationship to the world is transformed by Christ and so is our relationship with our spouse. Third relationship transformed by Jesus Christ, parents and children. Parents and children, chapter 6, 1 through 4. Children, you're up first. Listen to this, uh, young men and women, children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. It's a cold world out there, kids. Life is good right now. It may not always feel like that, but it is awfully good. Your bed, the roof over your head. Don't take these things for granted. The food that you eat that magically appears in your fridge and then on your plate. It's all God's kindness to you through mom and dad. But don't underestimate the danger that lurks in the shadows, just a step off the path of their instruction for you should you disobey their word. It is a scary world. There is not a monster under your bed, but there is one. There is one under the fabric of the universe. And that's why we're scared of the dark. As a rule, this obedience to your parents will make your life better and it will make your life longer. That is God's word. Now speaking maybe especially to junior hires and up, where your parents have taken a wrong turn and they tell you to do otherwise, don't take that as hypocrisy. Take that as God's kindness to you from love and their experience and wisdom. And when you think that you're right and your parents are wrong, be mindful that Paul wasn't writing this in some kind of golden age when parents were perfect and made no mistakes or when parents and children always saw eye to eye. And when you're tempted to dishonor and disobey your parents, consider that the opposite of the promise is actually true as well. That if there is disobedience, this shortens the life. This makes life harder. It has consequences. So children, honor Christ who for your sake obeyed his heavenly father and his earthly father perfectly and understands. Obey your parents in the Lord. Now, a word to fathers and mothers, listen in. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Dads, we must be very careful not to provoke our children to anger. Many a child has been driven from the home and perhaps the faith by provocative parenting, constant correction, capricious correction, condescending correction. Of course, our children are in the Lord's hands. We can do everything wrong and they can come to him. We can do everything right and they, they can turn. But there is a pattern that God has established and responsibilities were given. We can drive them away. The days are long and our joy can run thin and we need to be careful with the souls under our care that they are not collateral damage for our failure to love and treasure our Lord. We've got two jobs Discipline and instruction. Discipline. Proverbs tells us, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod drives it far away. So if the foolishness isn't living, or if the discipline is actually provoking the child to anger, then maybe we're not doing it right. Maybe we're not doing it right. I say maybe on purpose because it really is a maybe. Kids don't come in cans. There are patterns, but every family is different and every child is different. 
for you to evaluate. Maybe the discipline is not strong enough. Both foolishness and anger fight like monsters until the will of their host is put down. The dam of discipline must be strong enough or it will not hold. And maybe it's not consistent enough discipline. Who wants to live in a house of constantly changing rules? If anger and foolishness are welling up and 30% of the time mom and dad let it go, I'm willing to bet that a sinner will, will be willing to bet on that 30% and go for it and not restrain themselves. The dam of discipline must extend the length of the river or it will not hold. Or maybe it's discipline without the complement of a second thing Paul mentions here, which is instruction. And this is the often overlooked thing. Instruction can be the super obvious missing link. If discipline is reactive, then instruction is positively proactive. It includes reading and talking about the scriptures and God and life and the things of life in structured and unstructured way at the dinner table, on the floor playing with ponies, singing and praying at their bedside, driving to school in the morning and talking about the day's activities. A diet of happy and helpful instruction in the context of a deepening relationship with your child will strengthen them against temptation to rebel against your word when temptation rears its head, which it will. We must give ourselves to both. They are both needed for our children to understand the nature of God and the gospel and his grace, and they are both an expression of grace. As a new dad, I received my son when he was 20 months old. I did not feel like discipline was an extension, expression of grace, but it is. Children will not understand the grace that pardons sin unless they first understand the nature and seriousness of sin in the first place. Parenting is more than food and shelter. Uh, that's hard enough work as it is. Food and shelter is hard. Just staying alive with all the people in your house sometimes is hard. But it's worth it. We're fighting a monster of sin and we need help, so let's pray, let's pray, let's pray together for one another. Be honest with one another about our difficulties in parenting. Ask for help. Uh, our pride is a difficult thing here. Mine can be. At the end of the day, our children stand before the Lord, though, and there's some comfort in that. That, that they stand before the Lord, and so God dignifies them as spiritually and morally responsible people by addressing them here in the Word. The love of Christ transforms our relationship to the world and within our marriages and with our children and children with parents. The fourth relationship transformed by Christ between the powerful and the powerless. Between the powerful and the powerless. These are shocking verses, but for a reason you might not think at first. Let's read them. Verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. These words address what is otherwise translated as slaves and masters here as bond servants. And it's a kind of relationship we find incompatible with the heart of, of God and the word of God and therefore the Christian life. Weren't the plagues on Pharaoh God's indictment of slavery? Yes, they were. And so this passage is usually handled in two ways. Some have used this passage to say that according to scripture, slavery is right and good in history. And others using this passage, assuming that the Bible says that, use it to say that Christianity is wrong and bad. Still others use this to merely refer to employer-employee relationships that we have at work, and there is application there. But neither is quite right, and we need to get it right if we're going to hear God's word right. So I want to give you confidence in your Bible, and in doing so, elevate your view of humanity to transform your relationships in every authority structure situation you find yourself in. In the first century, slavery was an economic and assumed reality. Some 60 million slaves throughout the Roman Empire, a third of all the people 
in this area. They did nearly all of the work. A master might own a bank, but slaves and freemen would work at the bank at every level, and a slave may even manage the bank. This is not the same thing as the blemish on our own nation's history. The role of slaves did not come about because of their ethnicity, but circumstances. Sometimes they were a conquered people, sometimes sold or abandoned by parents, which is evil. Sometimes they defaulted on debt, no such thing as bankruptcy, and this was a way to make that debt right. And sometimes they volunteered themselves into, into this position as a means of bettering their own life. Further, their role was not necessarily permanent, but often a part of life. They could earn money, save money, and buy their freedom. Most slaves were freed by age 30. They could become heads of households and even inherit their master's wealth upon death. Felix, the governor of Judea, who who threw Paul into prison, was a good example. He, at one time, was actually a slave. So you get a sense of where this fit. It was the working class. It was not a just institution, but it was not the same as what might have occurred to us at first. The buying and selling of people is specifically condemned by Paul in 1 Timothy 1, where he speaks of enslavers. It's not inheriting God's kingdom. And in this letter, Paul was not writing to people to provide a map for the structural transformation of society, in part because Christians were such a small part of that society. But his silence isn't nothing, for he grounds the male and female relationship and the parent-child relationship in creation And in Revelation, he does not do that here. He merely speaks to Christians in the situations in which they find themselves. And yet what he says is still shocking, but as I said, in a way we might not have guessed, in the way that it elevates and dignifies each party and puts them under the lordship of Christ. With these words, Paul actually reimagines the entire relationship between slave and master on the page of his letter in such a way that undermines its norms. And it's these very ideas that leads to the abolition of slavery later that we find in the West. It's interesting that in American history, our own context is like the only place where there were vigilant, vigilant theological and legal arguments for the non-humanity of African slaves, which is a horrendous thought. But what's the deal? Why would we do that? Because we had a very, very high view of humanity created equal before God, we couldn't afford to believe that slaves were fully human. And so it's the conflict between our ideals and ideas rooted in a Judeo-Christian ethic that conflicted with the structure of our life together, which led to the eventual purging of this institution in the West and through the West and some other parts of the world. And here on this page, Paul actually planted the seeds that would break through the hardened pavement of human civilization in time. He does not affirm the institution, but reimagines their roles in light of the lordship of Christ. And it's massively dignifying of every human. So what are the implications for us? Well, if on a scale of power and authority and powerlessness, he's describing a situation way over here. But we find ourselves in all kinds of situations and relationships where we're in authority and under authority, and all of this applies. So those of you who are employed or under authority in the context of your workplace, which is where I think Paul would have addressed us were he writing this letter to you and to me today. What's there for us? We're to obey and to be easy to direct, to take our job seriously with fear and trembling to take the lead of our leaders. To take correction and direction, to work happily with a sincere heart, humbly knowing that we're serving Christ and not just them, we're not man-pleasers, to be satisfied in our work because our reward is ultimately not in our take-home or our job or our hours, but in the Lord. This will keep us from pride when we do well and it will keep us from pity when we're not affirmed. It's a word for workers. Now, a word for business owners, managers, and bosses of all kinds We owe you a lot for the job that you take on, for your hard work, and for what you go to bed with and wake up with in terms of responsibility and pressure. But you must remember your place. You are in authority, but you are also under authority in the same way that everyone that works for you is under authority. And it should be apparent to everyone who works with you that you are a man under or a woman under authority as well. 
Careful to honor your employees with deep respect. They are each made in God's image and precious to him and they can pick it up when you believe that's so. Motivate them in reasonable ways that make sense for the job, but never with cruelty or dehumanizing manipulation. And if doing so is a part of the DNA of your job because of the people that you work for, either transform your workplace or take a hike, had a conversation with a man in our church six months ago, very similar situation. He was asked to do something uh, for somebody, to somebody that works under him, and he had to confront his boss. It was risky, but it worked out. He had a different solution. Be creative. Be a Christian about it. So that's relationship, the powerful and the powerless in application to our work relationships. Now, a final relationship, the church and the devil. The church and the devil. And this one has undergone a bit of change. We used to follow the prince of the power of the air, and now we fight him. And yet this fight is easier said than fought. The stakes are higher than we might think, and it's harder than it might feel until we're swept away by his schemes. In war, we scheme. We work on ways to confuse and redirect and fool the enemy. We develop submarines and hide them so no one knows we've got them. There was recently a, uh, a car magazine overseas somewhere published, taking pictures of the car, you know, uh, going down the road. In the background is a top secret Russian sub. That's <laughs> hilarious. Um, so uh, they found out there, we found out some things about their sub in this picture. That was, that was a good article this week. I hope it's true, actually. So uh, it looked reputable. But the devil's a schemer. He's got things he hides from us. Sometimes it's a frontal attack like a riot, but oftentimes it's not a riot. It's a thought that occurs to you over here. It's a temptation over here, hardly even able to recognize it as such. So what are we to do? We're to be strong with strength that's not our own. We're to put on the full armor of everything we've learned in this book, and we're to pray like crazy because we need God's help. Listen to Paul's final remarks, his final plea in this book that depends on everything we've read so far. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as the shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit and with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You don't have enough strength to stand against the devil with his schemes and his minions and these powers and authorities that apparently are all around us that are described in this passage. You don't have it. But God's got all the strength. He's a divine warrior and his armor is available to you for defense and for offense. It's right here in the letter, the truth that lets you detect Satan's lies and deflect them. The righteousness that defends you from deafening accusations of guilt. The gospel of peace that reconciles you to God and one another. The faith that makes you believe God that what looks like an incoming stake is actually a fiery dart. Salvation, which reminds you that you're a child of the light when all around is darkness and the sword of the spirit that keeps all of this in front of you and prayer that keeps you tethered to God in dependence, alert and on point and ready and bold to preach the mystery of the gospel of Christ that saves you 
and defeats God's enemies through a cross. We cannot say we are fighting the devil when we are not praying in the same way that somebody drowning in water with somebody on the shore is too proud to cry out for help. Prayerlessness is pride and that convicts me. So take off your sweats and put on the full armor of God. Don't loaf as a Christian. Don't don't get lulled to sleep. That's part of the strategy. You feel comfortable, everything's all right. Pride comes before a fall. Now, to remind us that Paul was praying to people that he knew with real lives, his final words. Verse 21. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, my beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of you, all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Grace, peace, faith, love. I hope these words are filled with new and fuller meaning for you for our time reading and preaching through this book. Paul wrote these people he knew and loved and God writes it to us whom he knows and loves. And he writes it to us while we're at war to let us know that we are, but that the mystery of Christ is now revealed that God is putting all things under Jesus' feet, every unseen power and ruler. He did so by means of a cross and he proves it by means of his church. So prove it with your life, walk worthy of your calling, stand strong in the Lord. And may the world behold and hear of the mystery of Christ in the church through his word as the power of the love of Christ is demonstrated in us. Love that is incorruptible. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this good word that speaks to us of the incorruptible love of Christ and that you would make those who love the world to love you with a love that is incorruptible. We're grateful for salvation, for our adoption in Christ, that we're made alive in him and that we're empowered by the spirit and the love of Christ to live differently and we pray that this would be evident in the way we conduct ourselves in the world, in our marriages, in our parenting, our lives as children, our lives in the workplace, and in our alertness and ever vigilance in warring against the devil and his schemes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.